material that might not be suitable for children under 18. Parental guidance as well as listener guidance is suggested and recommended. Delaware Crime is not licensed in psychology or psychiatry and opinions are only based on facts of the case. Opinions are only opinions and not factual information. John Wheeler served in Vietnam, and when he came back, he began planning a memorial for all those who fought and died there. Now, in Washington, D.C., a city full of memorials, that memorial is the most visited of all. And, Roger, for John Wheeler and for the millions of others who go to touch that wall of names, the power of memory has only grown as time goes by. Lindsay, Milam, Morgan, Porter... Five fellas killed that day. Next day, Brumley, Creech, Gonzalez. Friend of yours? We've all got him up there, I'm afraid. See, if you run your hand across Tommy's name and then on across the panel, you're touching the names of the other men in his platoon, the one he was killed trying to save. When we got the memorial bill, we had no idea how many people would come. We would have been happy to get a piece of land about the size of most people's living room. You know, just a little piece of land somewhere. And we'd, we'd make a mark. We'd make a mark for our buddies who got killed in Vietnam. That's all we wanted to do. Okay, they're listed chronologically by the end of casualty, okay? They go down the, they go down the, the third class. 25E68, man, would be this way. 66 Cincinnati, yeah. Okay. It's 5E, slant 63. Is someone who visits the memorial a tourist or a pilgrim? Uh, he was a commander, a Navy commander. And honest to God, our thought was that our kids, my kids, when we built the memorial, would be able to go down in front of it and throw the frisbee. And that was our idea, kind of, kind of um, uh, integrate our memory with our carefree life, particularly the idea of kids being able to go down in front of the walls and, and throw a frisbee. That, you know, in our innocence, in our, in, our, in, our, in our thoughts before we actually built it, that's what we thought we'd do. Besides, we had no idea there'd be 12, 13, or 14,000 people a day visiting it. You know, we just thought that that's what would happen, and that was a dream we had. Um, but it didn't work out that way. It was always quiet. When the Tet Offensive started in February of 68, you've got the entire... 
got breaking news on a high-profile murder mystery with a victim who has connections to three different presidents. Welcome to America Live on a Tuesday, everyone. I'm Megyn Kelly. Right now, police are trying to piece together clues in the death of this man. John Wheeler had a long and illustrious career of service to our country. A West Point graduate, he's championed the effort to build the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall. He had deep ties to the U.S. military and served in the Reagan administration and both Bush administrations. But this American patriot did not get the burial he deserved. Instead, his body found late lax last week at a Delaware garbage dump. And just in the last couple of hours, police have developed a new lead on what they believe may have happened. Eric Sean is live in our New York newsroom with more. Eric? Omega, now we know that he was last seen alive less than 24 hours before his body fell out of that garbage truck in that landfill. With the question of this hour, why was he murdered and who did it? Police in Delaware say 66-year-old John Wheeler was seen on the afternoon of Thursday, December 30th in downtown Wilmington, right near the prestigious Hotel DuPont. That's just blocks away from an attorney's office representing Wheeler and his wife in a lawsuit against a neighbor. Now police are appealing to the public for help because they don't know where he was killed. They're also trying to nail down the timeline where he was in the hours before his body was found in the landfill after it fell out of the garbage truck that had been picking up trash, not in Wilmington, but in the city of Newark, Delaware. That truck went to 10 dumpsters. Police say, based on the autopsy, the body was not in one of the dumpsters for very long. You know, you would think that it would actually take two people to try and put a body in a dumpster, all part of the investigation. The police say Wheeler was not reported missing because his family was out of town for the holidays. Friends say they are shocked. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Delaware Crime. Thank you for listening. It means so much to me that you're supporting me. Hope you're having a great Monday and you had a very relaxing weekend. I know we did. So today we will be covering the 2010 mysterious death of Jack Wheeler. He was 66 when he died and he was a Vietnam vet and a White House aide during the Reagan administration and the Bush administration. So it's, it's a very, uh, it's a crazy case because there's so many conspiracy, conspiracy theories and so many, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. <laughs> That's all I can say. So um, we're going to start. So let's begin because there's a lot to cover today. So uh, John Parsons Wheeler III, known to his friends and family as Jack, died December 13 at the age of 66 after a life of public service. The cause of death was blunt force trauma inflicted by an unknown assailant in Wilmington, Delaware, close to his home in Old Newcastle, Delaware. At the time of his death, he was a consultant with M. I-T-R-E, a corporation, Mr. MTI Corporation, I'm sorry, Mr. Wheeler was best known for his chairmanship of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund. Really nice. Very nice. Which raised over $8 million in private donations and it succeeded in getting Congress to approve the site on the National Mall 
for Mela Lin's controversial design, not known as simply the wall. Upon its dedication on November 13, 1982, and that was the Veterans Wall, you know, in D.C., upon its dedication on November 13, 1982, even those who had objected to the design recognized the stunning beauty of the reflected, reflective back granite and the healing power of the names. So, um, I don't know how many of you have been to that wall, the Veterans Memorial Wall in D.C., I have to tell you, when you get the first time you ever go there, um, it's like you are just, you know, you got tears going down your face. It's just absolutely beautiful. And to think that, that many people died in the war, uh, just unbelievable. Really, it's very emotional. So, um, the stunning beauty, so we said, and the healing power of the names, you know, a lot of people go there to, you know, had loved ones that died. The memorial came to occupy a remarkable place in America's collective heart. Said Colin Powell said this. So he said, you know, it, it's, it, he thought it was a remarkable place in America's collective heart. Mr. Wheeler had served in Vietnam as the men member of the general staff at Kong Bing Post and was deeply affected by the loss of 10% of his West Point class and the shabby treatment of those who survived. And if you, um, you know, if you, you know, think about it when Vietnam was happening, now we, you know, our soldiers come home now and, you know, they're praised and honored and you see all these videos of soldiers coming home and everybody's got flags and yellow ribbons and but and during the Vietnam um, era that was not the case you know it was not the case and people thought you know that they they treated uh, vets badly because they thought they were killing it was just a different time just like now is a different time there's things about this you know going on now that people in the 50s might you know, say, oh, or sick, I'm sorry, 70s, that's when the Vietnam War was, might say, oh, gosh, how did that go, go happen? So, everything's always, there's always some kind of different thing, but it was sad because, you know, they were, they were the ones that were giving us our freedom and fighting for our protection, and, but it was a, just a sad thing. So, um, so they, they definitely did get shabby treatment of those who survived. According to Rick Atkinson, whose book The Long Gray Line chronicled <coughs> the lives of several members of the class of 66, including Mr. Wheeler, which that's a West Point. He went to West Point and graduated in 1966. Uh, it was a military academy that you go to if you're going to be in the Army, and um, you know, it's a, like a college level. Um, and you have to be accepted into it. You have to get like a most people. I don't, I don't know back then. It might have been different in the '60s, but um, now you have to get commissioned by. And you have to get a letter from the governor or whoever. So it's you know, and you get picked by the um, the West Point to that you get invited. In other words, uh, so Mr. Wheeler explored the effects of the war in his own book, which was called Touched with fire. 
the future of the Vietnam generation in 1984 and I did go on um, and you know audible and look that up and Amazon and and I did find it and uh, it was pretty interesting I'm not going to get into it but it was pretty interesting some of the things that he said about what happened you know when they were in Vietnam then when they got home and in the wounded generation America after the Vietnam to which he contributed so you know he really did a lot to honor those that died in his classes and you know fellow soldier, soldiers so that was wonderful and you know he was instrumental in getting that wall built and I just thought that was I never even knew that myself really I knew he was very important but I had no idea that he helped get helped to get that wall built <laughs> that was just un, un, that's just wonderful uh, after the war was finished, Mr. Wheeler took on charitable causes. He was the chairman and CEO of MAD, and I guess that's Mothers Against Drunk Driving, 1983-88, uh, the founding CEO of Vietnam Children Fund, which, you know, gives the, you know, those who die in Vietnam, their children get um, money, an advisor to support our aging religious and to the victims of Pan Am 103 on the building on building the memorial town dedicated in Arling Cemetery in 1995. So I don't know if you remember the the Pan Am, you know, with 9/11 and everything going on with that that was kind of forgotten, but it was uh, you know, people were on a flight and uh, they were, you know, I think they were, I can't remember where they were going, isn't that awful? Um, and he, they were killed on the flight, and uh, they, it was a terrorist thing, so, anyway, um, so he got a, a memorial for that. He conceived of, of, and affected the, he conceived of, and affected the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Collection. And that was a permanent exhibit at the Smithsonian Museum of American History of Objects Left at the Wall. And that, I, I have seen that. It's absolutely beautiful. It's just unbelievable. So that's something if you, you know, around the, if you're near the Smithsonian Museum, you know, uh, check that out. On a professional level, he was president and CEO of Deafness research foundation from 1997 to 2001 and a, and a consultant to JAD foundation and to the mercy ships so I I mean he was he he helped so many people I mean deaf people you know they, you know people who lost loved ones and disasters and I mean he was something else he also worked in corporate reconstruction reconstructing I'm sorry reconstruct and served as a special counsel to the chairman in the Macy's bankruptcy Macy's bankruptcy which is you know Macy's going bankrupt and he picked it up and Mr. Wheeler was happiest however in government especially military service so he held positions and this was uh, something that you know I thought was you know awesome um, uh, he held positions in the administrations of President Reagan, Bush Sr., and Bush Jr., which I said in the beginning. 
from 71 to 72, he was a senior planner for Amtrak. From 78 to 1986, he served as general counsel, then special counsel, to the chairman, and finally, secretaries of securities and exchange commission. So that's like, wow, you know. Taking off one year during that time to set up the Vietnam Veterans Leadership Program. From 2005 to 2008, he served as a special assistant to the Secretary of the Air Force, where his main focus was standing up, in, standing up the Air Force Cyber Command. So, you know, <laughs> so many things. The first such command in any service. So that's pretty impressive. Being concerned about the separation between the military and civilian worlds with an all-volunteer military. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, wow. Mr. Wheeler, Mr. Wheeler agitated constantly for the return of the ROTC to elite, elite colleges, being, in, being, believing it imperative that the country's future political leaders have military experience, which I think that's really neat, and I, I've actually known people that don't have done the ROTC program, and it, it's wonderful. You know, if you don't go to, like, a military school, like, you know, West Point, or the Naval Academy, or Air Force Academy, you, you know, you could still do military things, and I, I love that, you know. Um, so anyway, uh, a prestigious emailer, Mr. Wheeler, sent messages regularly to President Faust and the alumni of Harvard for many decades. He wrote on December 9, 2010, Harvard and West Point together, and I have to tell you, he, he, that, this was probably like about 10 days after he was missing and then he died. So Harvard and West Point together produced America's best war fighters, and Harvard and West Point grads fought and led together. Al Holmes Jr. for one Elliot Richardson for another. So Mr. Wheeler came by his affection for soldiers naturally. Both his father and John Parsons Wheeler Jr. and his grandfather were cavalry men and ancestor, ancestors fighting Joe Wheeler was a hero first in the Confederacy and later in the Spanish-American War. That was his grandfather fighting Joe Wheeler. <laughs> when when Mr. Wheeler, the first of three children, was born in Laredo, Texas to Janet Connolly uh, Wheeler, his childhood was spent at various army posts before he went to West Point where he was a distinguished graduate. That's pretty impressive to be going to West Point and he'd graduate with being distinguished. So he was later said it was later said that in trying to decide whether to accept a National Merit Scholarship to Yale or an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy, he chose the latter because he wanted his life to be useful. That's really, that's awesome. Before deployment to Vietnam, he received an MBA from Harvard Business School. Wow. Oof, smart guy here. And the same month, Columbia University followed suit announcing its intention to reinstate the RTC program, which Mr. Wheeler was in interred with full military honors when he died at the National Cemetery. So, 
you know, he was, uh, you know, he did a lot of service and he deserved all that military, you know, when he died, he deserved all the military attention and, you know, specialness. Um, and also, um, in Army, and uh, from the Army 19th, when he got done with Vietnam, he, Mr. Rowe spent a year attending Virgi Virginia th um, Theological Seminary. So he got done with Vietnam, he, you know, he had a, you know, was a, he, then he went and spent a, <laughs> to seminary school before deciding to go to Yale Law School uh, after which he clerked for Judge George Matinian at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Wow. I mean, what didn't this guy not do? <laughs> you know, impressive, you know. Went to law school, went to seminary school. Oh my gosh. The breath of Breath of Mr. Wheeler's education served him well, even though he spent a little time in private law practice and never went into business. I, I think that was like way above him to do that. He wanted to serve people. You know, he, I don't think he would be the kind of person that would want to. No thanks to your lawyers. I, I mean, I, you, you, I don't know how you all do it. I'm, a, you know, but I just have to say I don't think that was something he didn't want to do because he wanted to help people, so, you know, and, and, and lawyers do, you know, they do it because they want to make a living, so it's hard work, so I get that, but I don't think he wanted to do that. Okay, so, um, in 2008, Pontus retired for federal service after a total, okay, so he was in federal service, a total of 20 years in harness, as he liked to say, he was presented with Air Force, with the Air Force Exceptional Civilian Service Award with bronze with the bronze device. Pretty impressive. I don't know much about the bronze, you know, but I think it's pretty pretty high up there. If anybody wants to email me, my, uh, you know, email is in the description of the episode. I, so I should know more about it because I was with some, with two people in my life that I was with uh, that both were, one was in the Army and one was in the Air Force and so I should know a lot more about, about it, but, you know, getting up there in age, forget. So, um, the citation ended with this sentence. The singular distinctive, I'm sorry, the singular distinctive accomplishments of Mr. Wheeler dedicated in the dedication of service to his country reflects great credit upon himself and the United States Air Force. Mr. Wheeler is, was, um, survived when he died by, by his wife, Catherine Pericles, and his mother, Janet Connolly Wheeler. His two children, John Parsons Wheeler and Catherine Marie Wheeler, um, they were, and they were twins, as far as I, I that's what they, his wife originally said, they were twins. His two stepchildren, Bert Sachs-Chassis, and Meriwether Clace Chassis and sister Janet Wheeler Gilani. So I think, and, I, and um, in some of the, you know, things I watched, you know, about him and the case that, that he was, he treated his uh, stepchildren like he did, um, you know, his, like uh, his own children. And they loved him like a father. It was just, just wonderful.
and he was preceded by his brother Robert Connolly Wheeler in March 2011. Oh, I'm sorry. In March 2011, just three months after Miller's, Wheeler's death, Harvard firmly announced its plan to welcome the Naval Reserve, Naval Reserve Officers Training Corp and our OTC program back to campus. Okay, so that was pretty, pretty remarkable, like I said. Uh, excuse me. Friends, I'm trying to get through my notes here. You have to, you know. Okay, so, um, earlier, John Peel's, John Wheeler's body was found after being dumped in a landfill in Wilmington, Delaware on December 31st, 2010. The 66-year-old federal military consultant's cause of death was ruled a homicide caused by blunt force trauma. But sadly, no one has ever been accountable for Wheeler's murder. And video surveillance in the days before Wheeler's body was found deep in the mystery of what happened to such an amazing man. And I really... I mean, I, you know, I saw the videos, and it looked like he was, I mean, I, I don't know this, I know, like, he had a problem with, um, directions, he could not find his way, like, he just, he, it, you know, he was really bad, I mean, he would get lost very easily, I think it had something to do with his, m some mental issues he had, which we'll talk about more, but he just could not, um, you know, there's a lot of times his wife said that he would, uh, you know, forget where his car was a lot, and he would have to take it to train him or whatever, you know, he'd forget. He just, I don't know. It's very strange, but that's what happens with people, especially when people, I notice, like, people that are really smart sometimes, they, not everybody that's really smart, but some, they, they there's things that come with that. Like they have too much in their head or something. So, okay. So, um, but no one has been accountable. Um, so, no one's held accountable. Um, a friend of Wheeler's who had worked with him describes him as the the Atlantic as generations long military officer heritage. West Point '66 grad, service in Vietnam, and then Harvard Business School and Yale. Miss. Okay, so he, you know, he was saying the same thing. Um, he, he said that he, you know, his friend said he, he always tried to address um, the 40-year open wound of Vietnam-era soldiers being spurned by society that sent them to war. So he was saying that that was a big priority for him, you know. And let's face it, I don't care who you vote for. What party you're involved in, you know, our soldiers don't get a lot of help with mental issues and things like that, and there needs to be more done in my eyes, so I, I think that's wonderful that he was trying to do that. Being spurred by society that sent them to war. He was the chairman of the committee that got the Vietnam Veterans Memorial built in the 1980s. Wheeler was the chairman of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund. Yet during his inception, the now revered memorial to those who were killed in the Vietnam War was a strife 
with controversy and investigation into where the money was being raised. It always is like that. Somebody always wants to, you know, uh, blow out somebody's balloon or, you know, they don't, you know. According to the FBI ball files, the FBI cleared Wheeler of any wrongdoing. The wall today provides one of Nationals Mall's most powerful scenes, according to the website in Washington, D.C. So, you know, I mean, I've been there. I can't imagine that wall not being there. I mean, I and the people I saw, I saw people kissing it and, you know, looking at it and crying. I mean, it was very emotional. So, I, okay, you know, like, just people are always trying to do that stuff, even today. Okay, uh, the memorial has been more than 58,000 names. Wow, didn't even know that. Of those who were killed or went missing during the Vietnam War, etched on it reflective surface. So, um, you know, in the parking garage, uh, when, so we're going to go in more into the case now, what happened. Uh, in the parking garage, videos from December 29th, two days before his death, showed Wheeler in a black suit with no tie. Wearing only one shoe. That's a little, that was definitely bizarre when I heard that. Even though there was snow outside. So it was like, this was like December 20, between the 29th and 30, 31st. He was actually found in the landfill on the 31st. So you're talking, you know, this was winter. This was like around Christmas, so. In Delaware, it gets very cold that time of year, so you don't want to be out, you know, it could be freezing. Sometimes it can be like summer-like weather, <laughs> you never know, but, uh, not summer-like, but, you know, be a little warmer, but then sometimes it's very, very cold, and I wouldn't want to be out there. So, um, but there, and there was snow out. Delaware Online interviewed a parking lot attendant at the Newcastle County Court Courthouse where videos shared Wheeler, and I don't know what he was doing at the courthouse. I'm not sure. That was, like, put in there, and I've been to the courthouse, and I, I guess somehow he stumbled there. I, I have no idea. Or he parked his, he thought he parked his car there. I have no idea. Uh, tying a shoe and talking to the employees who said it was about 7 p.m. on December 29th, and that was so that, you know, that all the, off the courthouse was closed, obviously. Working saying he wanted to get warm before he paid for his parking. Okay, so he, I don't, you know, he obviously wanted to get, you know, he was getting cold. Uh, she told Delaware Online, I kind of found it strange because he didn't have a coat on and he had one shoe in his hand. But she told me, but she, he told me he could get warm. The woman told Delaware Online she was behind the glass. Someone behind the glass. So, she was the someone behind the glass, in other words. Catherine Clace was John Jekyll's second wife. She last saw her late husband, that was his second wife that he married, and I think they married, I can't remember when they married, but they were, that was his second wife, and like I said, she had two kids, and he had two kids, and they were, you know. And his first wife, you know, apparently they were close also. She was very devastated about his death and helped, too, um... So, you know, it was really, you know, it's very sad. He had so many people that loved him. Uh, she slut, so um, his second wife, Catherine, said she last saw her late husband on December 26, 
2010. And I want to bring it up that they built, they had a house in Old Newcastle, historical house in Old Newcastle that um, Jack loved being at. And then they also had a condo, and I think it was in Harlem, you know, but it was in a nice area. So they um, had two different places they lived. Um, you know, I think his wife preferred living in New York. I think her family was there. And they would go back and forth and, you know. So Wheeler was was killed a few days later and found dead in Delaware in the, um, you know, uh, what do you call it? The uh, Cherry Park, uh, you know, the Cherry Park, you know, um, site where, uh, the, you know, that. So anyway. Wheeler was, uh, found, if, okay, so Wheeler had two children, we already know that, and he, and then, and the, oh, by the way, his first marriage was, uh, to Elise Kleiss, Wheeler, Wheeler uh, I'm sorry, Wheeler, Elise Wheeler, and she was about 74, um, so that was, you know, pretty good, uh, he was, like I said. Alright, well, we're going to stop here and um, do a um, commercial for um, Audible, um, and uh, we will be right back after that, and I will talk more about this, you know, murder, and what happened, and all the crazy things that happened. So, it's now time for a commercial about Audible, and I have to tell you, I love Audible. I mean, I, I do research on my cases through Audible because, you know, they they have books about this and some of the cases I do. So, I, uh, you know, I really love Audible. And like I said before, my son and I both use it. We use it for homeschooling and all kinds of things. So, hang on, and we'll be right back in just a few minutes. Thank you. Listen, come closer. What's more powerful than a voice in your ear? Even through hours of motorway monotony, a voice can make you imagine anything. Cradling a baby dragon as it draws its first breath, or strangling your lover as he exhales his last. When we listen, amazing things happen in here. Audible, an Amazon company. Download your first audiobook for free at www.audible.com. Audible, amazing things happen when you listen. Jack and I were married for 13 years. We lived in Harlem and we had a house in Newcastle. He had two kids that were twins that he adored and I had two kids and he treated my kids like they were his. I met Jack when my mother you know, started dating him and he was a funny sort of cheesy but very serious man. Being married to Jack means you're never, you're, it's, it's never dull, it's full of unexpected things, which I like. When I first met Jack, 
I remember talking to him and saying something about George Balanchine Ballet. And he said, I watched Balanchine choreograph Jules. I said, you did? Now that's like saying to a drug addict, I have I have a lifetime supply of anything you want. I mean, it, it was, because I, I, I love Jules. I love all Balanchine Ballet. A soldier who loves ballet. I just thought how lucky I was. Oh, I loved him with all my heart. I really did. Okay, we're back. Um, and I hope you like that about Audible. Like I said, uh, you know, that's one of my all-time favorites. I do when do my ad, but um, and uh, Simply Safe, obviously, you've heard those ads. Uh, so I do ads about things that work and they're good for us, for my son and I. So anyway, um, around the time, uh, so we're back. So Wheeler's wife, around the time of his death, gave multiple interviews. Since then, Clay has maintained a low profile. Um, so, so um, they did. She did mention that uh, Clay had mean okay. That when Clay last saw her husband, the pair had a dispute after Wheeler refused to go to her cousin's wedding in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So. Apparently he didn't want to go, and she wanted him to go, but, you know, that's, you know, they made that, like, the center of the case, like, you know, like, she might have done it. I was so stupid when I saw that. I was like, come on. You know, and, uh, but that wasn't, you know, that happens in any, even the best marriages, so. Despite having bipolar disorder, John Jack Parsons Wheeler had an un had an unprecedented resume in 66 years and we know that but you know unfortunately in 2010 uh, his life was cut short he lost all of it his whole life and it was all under the strangest of circumstances which let me tell you it was you know it's sad because you know, the series of events, you know, it made it, um, you know, back then there wasn't as much, you know, um, even if you had a self in, which she didn't have a self in with him at the time, you know, it wasn't as, uh, you know, far, you know, advanced technically as it is now. So, so, uh, and plus, you know, like it's, said he didn't have a cell phone with him so we'll get into that so there's a lot of weird circumstances so he left heart the Harlem home that he shared with his wife Catherine after Christmas on December 28 2010 but sadly he never made it back um, to just to, to the wedding or to see her on December 31st, 2010, at 9.56 a.m., Jack Wheeler's body was found dumped in the Cherry Island landfill in Wilmington, Delaware. And I'm going to tell you, that's in Newark. I, I've seen that place. It's not, you know, not very 
it's not something um, that I wouldn't be in or be near, but a place where he had no business being, being, um, or being held, you know, being left in, you know, he, was a, you know, had an amazing life and it was a man of integrity, you know. He did, you know, he did have that second home, Newcastle, Delaware, but Wilmington was a completely different area. And there was a lot of qu question that came into that where he was found into in a uh, New Newark dump, you know, that was in Newark, that Cherry Hill, Cherry Island landfill, and they did find some DNA in an, um, you know, uh, what do you call it, there's trash trash bins or whatever they, he, they did find some of that in um you know and it was just dna in one of them in newark which you know i guess they record you know they have it all you know you know they have it all on record uh where they throw the trash and where trash gets thrown where and so i guess they were able to f figure it out that way um so they were just kind of like where how did he get to newark if he was in Wilmington, and how did he get to, you know, so there's all kinds of weird questions, um, assumptions, uh, some were credible, I guess, but they were, um, you know, there was so much that was said, and, you know, so many things that were thrown around, and it just was crazy, I mean, seriously. Okay, so, um, After his body was secured and sent to the coroner's office, so when they found, so from what I heard, the story was um, this man that worked, um, you know, was like ran the cherry, cherry uh, landfill, or you know, he was um, Cherry Island landfill. I'm sorry, he was, uh, you know, he got called and said that somebody you know, without, like, dumping some of the trash, doing a dump, and that they found, that they saw bodies sticking up. And, uh, so he came and saw that, and he said it was very traumatic, because they, you know, they don't, that doesn't happen every day. You know, they don't find bodies and, uh, trash, trash, you know, things. So it was very traumatic, and he said that they put a blanket on top of him until they, um, till the you know, police got there, and, uh, you know, I can't even imagine, so, you know, these guys that would work at the landfill, they saw, the, and it was pretty beat up, and it was, I couldn't imagine, I just couldn't imagine, so, that was an interesting story, and, uh, you know, it's not something you want to find, you're, you know, when you're doing, you're trying to do your job, and get everybody's trash, and everything, and then you, uh, that's a hard job as it is, but to go through that, so that was the story, the, the man that, um, you know, he talked to one of the documentaries, and it made me feel really bad for him, and he said, I, he goes, I just felt so bad, and it took me a while to get over it, I felt like I was being, you know, like I was being, you know, that I shouldn't have felt that way, and I said, I said to myself, yes, I would feel that way. So anyway, um, so, um, so he had died, the court, so when they, they did the autopsy, you know, the coroner's office, that he had died and they, you know, found out that he died in the worst ways, worst of ways. He was beaten and thrown around in such a way that he had severe injuries all over his body as listed in his report. A few of them are hemorrhage, 
hemorrhages, contusions, punctured lungs, broken ribs, aspiration of blood, external neck injuries, bruises to the face, and orbital bones and lacerations. So he was pretty banged up, I can tell you. Ultimately, the cause of his death was determined to be blunt force trauma, and the manner of his death was ruled as a homicide. Now, there has been speculation that he also had a heart attack, and uh, that was something that was repeated in several of the, thing, the research I did. Uh, so, um, I think maybe that caused him to have a heart attack, that all that was happening. Because of the way Jack was found, found, it was evident that foul play was involved. So, as soon as the investigators arrived, they secured the landfill and, became, and began combing through landfill and began carrying through tons and tons of trash for any evidence. I can't even imagine. But at last, they found no pieces of clothing. I, I mean, can you imagine, you know, people... I'll tell you. Think what you want about the police, but I gotta tell you. And, and, you know, there's good and bad in every profession. I'm not saying that. But, you know, having to go through trash like that, I, I couldn't... That You know, that's just heroic. <laughs> but uh, they found no pieces of clothing or no cell phone, no DNA blood, or any other items that could positively connect, connect, be connected to Jack's death, Wheeler's death. Therefore, the authorities decided to retrace the last few days he was alive, which was initially thought to be relatively easy since Jack rarely went anywhere without his cell phone and briefcase in hand. So, okay. So anyway... <clears throat> so on December 28th he left home in the morning telling his wife that he had to go to Washington D.C. for some important work not um, and that was his um, home um, in Harlem for important work not usually considering how busy he liked to keep himself so he was always going to D.C. for a meeting or some kind of important thing so his wife didn't think anything of it and he liked to keep to himself, so he liked to down alone time. Um, he reached his destination, worked for the day, and then left to go to Newcastle, his second home, for the night. So he left, you know, he, he wanted to go home. That same night, now this is something that was really weird, and we'll get into that. That same night, a smoke bomb went off in the house that, that was under construction right across from his place. And that's when everything changed. Come morning, Catherine tried calling him, but he didn't pick up. At the same time, he sent email to. At the around the same time, he sent an email to Mitra, telling him that there had been break-ins in the home. Um, so that's like a a, a uh, FBI organization that he called. I, I don't know. And there had been a break-in in his home. And that, that his mistress badge and what key fob briefcase and cell phone had been taken. Okay, so he was saying, you know, every, I don't know if that was true or... But uh, Jack didn't inform the police or his wife about any of this. In fact, he didn't communicate with either of them for the rest of the time he was alive. So, you know, he was calling, you know, the, the FBI or whatever and telling them these things. But he didn't say anything to the actual police or um, his wife. So, you know, and then 
apparently what had happened was, uh, you know, there, and we'll get into that more, um, you know, he didn't have a cell phone because he had, there was a kind of dispute uh, with him building a home, or, or some, some, somebody, a builder building a home across the street, um, and uh, because it blocked his view of, uh, you know, the old Newcastle, you know, they have a bat place called Battery Park, and, you know, it's the Delaware, Delaware River, and whatever, and, you know, he, he, there's no, um, you know, he, he thought it would mess up his view, um, it just, I don't know the whole story, but we'll get into that, so, uh, so he didn't have, at the time, so they said that at this, that he had, they believed that he had done the smoke bombs because, um, he was mad about the house, and dropped his cell phone because they found the cell phone in, in the house that was being built. So, um, so that's, that was part of the reason. Without Jack's phone, all the investigators had was a video surveillance to track him. So, on December 29th, at 6 p.m., Jack entered a local pharmacy and asked people if they would give him a ride into Wilmington. So it's like, I don't know. I mean, I guess... People, you know, people in Delaware are a lot nicer than they are in, let's say, any place else. But, you know, kind of weird to ask somebody you don't know if they're going to be, like, a, just going to bang you on the head or what, you know. So, uh, Jack, and I guess at 6.42 p.m., he was seen in a parking, giving a ride into Wilmington, to the city. And he was saying to the, he said to the people, I have my car there in the parking garage and I need to get to it and I don't have any way of getting there. So I guess they gave him a ride. At 6.42, and this is, uh, this, this, uh, place he had gone, this hap, was it, this, you know, drugstore, um, it was, uh, I think it was Walgreens at the time. I'm not sure, but anyway, so he, you know, when he went into that, um, place he had been there he got a lot of his uh, prescriptions there so they knew who he was but he didn't ask for a prescription he was asking or anything he just wanted to ride so that's that was pretty crazy um he was seen in a parking garage there and um you know it seemed like he you know he just wanted to get back to newcastle um you know, so it was just crazy. So when he got dropped off, he, he Jack was entirely in the wrong parking lot. And like I said, the, the, he had a horrible sense of direction. Terrible. Uh, he, he was blocks away from where he actually left his car. So that was pretty scary right there. The footage clearly shows that he was distressed and agitated, looking over his shoulder and in corners every few seconds, as if he was scared that somebody would jump out. And, you know, you know, they said it was because of some kind of thing that he did, security thing, they were trying to get after him, but I feel like, you know, it's, Wilmington is a scary place. It's a city, you know, there's a lot of murder, like, in the, not, 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 you know, all Wilmington, but there's, you know, in the heart of the city, in the middle of the city, there is a lot of things that go on, a lot of murders, a lot of people doing drugs. You know, it's it's not like one of the safest places, you know, in the middle of the city. Uh, so anyway, also Jack was wearing only one shoe, carrying the other one in his hand. And re and and by the way, I'm going to put these videos on um, 
my Facebook page so that people can see. Uh, and repeatedly telling the personal, I'm sorry, the, my Delaware Crime Facebook page. And repeatedly telling the personnel there that his briefcase was stolen. His family confirmed that Jack was directionally challenged, and we said that. He had a lot of, and his behavior could have been due to his bipolar disorder. But you know, now there's been speculation that he didn't really have bipolar, but he was more like Asperger's. But I, you know, I don't know that. Um, but he might have just not even been a little bit higher than Asperger's. You know, it's you know what you are on the spectrum. People get that confused. They think when somebody says Asperger's, that's just like they have Asperger's and they have all the symptoms. But that's not the way it works. It's like depends. You could have different stages of Asperger's, different stages of autism, you know, but... So, anyway, um, pointing out that he was a diligent, and that he was a very diligent with his medication. And so it was like, so it wasn't likely, but, you know. On the evening of December 30th, he was seen in the basement of an office complex in downtown Wilmington. And I know where that is. He was in the Morris Building, which is... Uh, owned by, you know, the DuPont company. Um, apparently he spent the night and part of the day there. He left this place around 8.30 p.m. strangely wearing a hoodie that he had never never to be seen again. And, um, you know, he could have got the hoodie. I think there was a gym in the basement down there. He could have got the hoodie from his locker. But we don't, we'll never know. Um, a witness did come forward and say they shared a cab with Jack around 11 p.m. that night, which Jack had climbed into after he it was headed towards Newark. So, that was interesting. I don't know if he was trying to take a train to Newcastle. I have no idea. And, like I said, they said that the trash surrounding his body was determined to be there as well. It was plausible that it happened, but we they don't know that for sure. Subsequently, all the dump dumpsters in Newark were examined, and a... A partial DNA match, like I said earlier, was found from Jack. But the question still remains why, as to why Jack was in Newark or a dumpster. Some theories suggest that he was on the run from something or someone and decided to climb to the dumpster himself to get some words through the night. But the latter part of this gets thrown away when the all injuries, I'm sorry, when his all top and injuries are looked into. So, you know, he, even though if he had been in a dumpster and they had picked it up, you know, to get dumped, you know, he could have got banged around and all that kind of stuff, and I understand that, but that, I don't know. For all his injuries, I don't think that was, maybe he got, you know, he got killed in thrown in one, you know, probably that's what happened. But we don't know that for sure. We don't know anything. But we don't. I don't think it's that was the only thing that happened to him. You know, he might have got injuries in the dumpster, but not uh, the the other injuries he had. Um, the theory of mugging comes into play. Yet that seems next to impossible. Main, mainly as Jack had been careful, carefully disposed of, and he still had come, had some cash in his wallet. Okay, he had cash in his wallet his West Point ring and a Rolex on his, on him being, you know, so it wasn't a robbery. We don't know what it was, but it wasn't a robbery. He had, because he had all that, you know, a Rolex, a real Rolex. 
his West Point ring, which was a very expensive thing, and money. If, you know, if it was like a drug thing, or if somebody had drugs and stuff from him, I don't know. But that, that was kind of thrown out the window. The strangest thing, though, was the state of his Newcastle home. And we talked about this earlier. Um, and the evidence found near there. On the morning his body was discovered, his neighbor called the police to report a burglary at his place. He oversaw Jack's property. So this is like one of his neighbors. You know how you have, like I have good neighbors and, um, you know, some of my neighbors, I, you know, will say, here's a kid in my house, something happens, whatever. Uh, you know, neighbors for 16 years, so you can trust them. But anyway, so on the morning his body was discovered, a neighbor called the police to report a burglary at his place. So, um, when he entered the house, he saw that the whole place had been overturned and thrashed with things um, scattered on the floor and cuttery broken in the sink. And so he died 911. Um, and also, there were plates broken. And the investigators soon found Jack's phone, but it was. It was in the under construction house across the street, which I mentioned earlier. <sighs> Making them think that maybe Jack had set off the smoke bombs. In the end, nothing about who could have possibly wanted to harm Jack in such a way was found. So it was just crazy. So he, his phone, I guess he dropped it. They, the speculation is that he dropped his phone and he didn't know, he went to the smoke bombs, and then when he was done, he had, didn't know he, where his friend was, so he flipped out and started throwing things around the house, breaking dishes, uh, taking some of his memorabilia, because they found this, like, knife that he, from West Point, that he'd gotten, and, uh, or sword, and a book, or, you know, and, and clerks on the floor. He knocked over a bunch of things, spices, and, you know, it was just crazy, so... I think he kind of flipped out when he couldn't find his phone. But that's, you know, whatever. Nevertheless, some people believe that his murder was the direct result of a professional hit job, concerning all the evidence or their lack thereof. On December 29th, 6 p.m., Jack Dunderlick, and, uh, you know, like I said, he learned that was the when, when he went in the ph pharmacy. Um, and then one thing he did say to the, the woman that was um, in the thing, um, in the, uh, you know, cage at the parking spot behind the window, uh, that there, that that telling, he was telling anybody, um, even the people who gave Rachi that his briefcase was stolen. And his family covered the jack was directionally challenged. We, were, we already knew that. But plus, you know, his briefcase from what I saw in my research was something that was very important to him. He had a briefcase with him everywhere he went. I mean, he had all very important documents in there that were top secret. He had he would always have it locked. And, you know, he never went anywhere without his briefcase or his fan. So that was kind of crazy. You know, he was very picky about that. Like, that was not something that like, was unnegotiable. He had to have his briefcase and his fan with him. Um, so on the so on the evening of December 30th, he had been seen in the basement of that Nemours building in Wilmington, uh, and he's like I said, he spent the night and part of the day there. So he left that place around 8:30. Stranger wearing the hoodie, 
And then, you know, like I said, he was never seen again. All right, so that was, uh, you know, definitely weird, uh, you know, and I said they put the, they did find the DNA match for the thing. Um, so that was very strange. And, uh, okay, so, um, so, um, so there, you know, like I said, the place was overturned, um, and, and it was funny because the police, uh, you know, the police were kind of in, in, um, contact with each other, and when Jack's body was found, one policeman said, we're going, we found a body, um, it's Jack Wheeler, whatever, and the one policeman said, oh, we're going over his house now, because this was like the same day they found his body, because the neighbor said the house was, uh, you know, all broken up, and, you know, there was things broken, and stuff on the floor, and they, you know, the neighbor thought it was a robbery. But they don't know that either. It could have been a robbery. It could have been I don't. It could have been some kind of thing going on. They will never know. Uh, you know they and like I said, they think that Jack sent uh, set off those smoke bombs. But they don't feel like anything would have harmed anybody. Like like the neighbors or the people that are building the house would want to harm Jack. So um, that was never found. Um, so I just think, you know, um, <coughs> you know, um, so that was, you know, one of the things. And, you know, about the case, um, to further complicate the story, there's an existing criminal investigation focusing on a house under construction from Wheeler's home just day be days before Wheeler's body was discovered. And, and you know, like I said, that was... That was uh, something that they had, you know, there were smoke bombs were set off. So it was not good, um, you know. So um, in all of all this chaos, there were some things that, you know, they hadn't said in um, some of the podcasts I listened to, other podcasts and um, YouTube videos and shows that there was a, um, you know, that they think that because he dropped a cell phone, he couldn't find it. That's why he flipped out, and he did this stuff in his house. And another neighbor testified, Wheeler's television blared continuously in the days preceding his death. So, you know, he had his TV up last, so something, something was going on. And I think he was still there at that point at his home. Um, so, you know, and like I said, there was stuff down in his prize ceremonial sword from West Point, and a book lay open on the kitchen counter. It was The Long Gray Line by former Washington Post Rick Atkinson, a nonfiction account of West Point's class of 1966. You know, we talked about that in the beginning. Uh, so, you know, so how all this connects with Wheeler's subsequent behavior and his death is unclear, but there's a connecting thread. Wheeler, a Vietnam vet, veteran, was upset about the house being built and he believed the site held a significant cultural value as an historical military site. Neighbor Scott Morris had called the police on the night of December 28th of the figure in the home under construction methodically lighting what looked like small balls of fire and tossing them on the floor. 
They were wrote, and the police found out that they were called rodent smoke bombs. So that was, uh, you know, and Weeder had filed a lawsuit. Um, Uh, trying to prevent the construction of a home across, you know, the home across the street. Um, because it was a, it was built on a slice of private land within the Battery Park, which was, you know, in, in his eyes, in Jack's eyes, was considered sacri sacrilege because it was a historical city. The house, a lot of the houses were historical houses. And he, you know, and he was apparently upset that the construction had continued despite his pending case. So that was, and his wife said that he just didn't want to let it go. He just, that's how he was. Real had developed an interest in hacking and may have tried to hack someone involved in this project. On the, on one of the to-do lists, whether left behind dated December 5th, dated December 5th, mentions hacking a target. Wheeler believed corrupt government officials in Delaware, which this was never improving, had allowed in allowed this in his mind to be associated with the construction dispute. That illegal construction had been had taken place um, and that if we had been caught suggest that if we had been caught attempting arson or hacking he may have been targeted because of it. But you know that was never proven. So they, you know, like I said, they never said this, but this is, Wheeler also suffered a heart attack, according to his autopsy report. So they, a lot of the, you know, news things, they did not say that. And um, another thing that was also said that, I, and like I said, that I don't have any confirmation on this, but it said that Wheeler visited the new Moore's building, a high-end office high-rise, possibly to consult a lawyer. And he, but he had requested to speak with a managing partner at the firm. Wheeler had spent the night in the building space, but no one really knows why he was there. Um, so his wife also said that it was not out of the, uh, the at the you know about the not finding his parking spot. That it was not out of the ordinary. He had done this many times, you know, before that night. Um, so, Netflix aired a, um, an episode, Unsolved Mysteries Reboot, sh show in October 20th, and on this case, on this case, and other true crimes, um, true crime shows and podcasts have been aired on this case, lots of them, there's lots of them, I couldn't even remember, but you could just type in John Wheeler crime shows, and it will, it will have eight, eight million. His family of her... Uh, no reward. And I wanted to say also um, that in um, 2004, um, what I, you know, 2004 that uh, Jack had um, had a, you know, I don't want to, a, break, a breakdown and was hospitalized for that. Um, you know, I don't like to bring that up, but that was something that he was hospitalized for a short period of time, but he had had a breakdown and got kind of like this kind of thing happened where he got lost, and so they had put him on, um, you know, uh, you know, on, on on medication, and so that was that was in 2004. So that was what six years before he died. So he had been, um, uh, you know, um, 
you know, struggling with his illness several times. Now, I don't know if he had, that had ever happened, um, you know, and also, you know, a lot of it, he did have post-traumatic stress, which, uh, you know, he, he tirelessly worked to help people with that. Um, so I wanted to say, you know, that that was, it, mental illness is not something, you know, you can help um, or you can, you know, do, you know, you can't help that always. You have to, you know, take medication or get help or whatever you want to do to um, remedy that. It's not something that's easy, um, you know, not something that, you know, people can control sometimes. And no matter how hard they try with depression and I, I mean, like I said this before, I have anxiety issues, and that has a lot to do with, um, you know, that I take medication for that. Um, so, um, so I just wanted to mention that, that that's something, you know, I don't want him to be judged for, uh, you know, for what he, you know, for that, because let's face it, I think all of us have a little mental illness, um, you know, that we want to get, you know, want to, you know. You know, we all have a little bit of doubts and mental illness, I think. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, part of the, uh, you know, uh, issues with everybody. And like I said, you know, he was in the Vietnam War. And, you know, he probably, you know, like any person who's in a war for a long time, that, um, you know, that he, you know, had uh, post-traumatic stress. Because um, he did work you know, um, for, you know, for, to combat that for a lot of the soldiers, so, um, that was something I wanted to bring up, but I don't want to, the reason I'm talking about it so much is I don't want it to sound like, uh, you know, that, that was something that, um, stopped him, because obviously you could see, uh, you know, that that, that was, uh, you know, nothing that he, you know, it wasn't something that stopped him. Look at the, all the great things he did. And we just have to keep that in mind. You know, that people, um, you know, you know, that when this has happened, that people, you know, were, um, you know, that they will, you know, things, you know, they might be in a different place than you and me, but they do survive and they do, things do happen and, you know pretty, you know, they, they live through life. So I just wanted to bring that up and, um, you know, let people know that you can live with mental illness. So, um, I just wanted to say that. And, uh, so, you know, he did. And, you know, from what his family told, said, um, on these things, um, you know, um, you know, and he, and, and I wanted to say that, okay, oh, and also I forgot to tell you that, um, you know, um, he, uh, Wheeler is buried at the full, with full honors at Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia, um, because of, and, you know, the decades of service, so, and the Bush family attended his funeral, and the, you know, Obama was president at the time, so Obama, Obama, um, was at his funeral as well, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, people were shocked, I mean, that, because he, he was such a wonderful person, um, so, you know, um, you know, I think, I had, I saw a clip where Bush and Obama made comments separately, 
about what a wonderful person he was and, you know, that they could not believe this happened. Um, so we know at one point, you know, one of the videos shows him at hotel, in front of the Hotel DuPont walking. Um, and he did tell one of the taxi drivers that he wouldn't stay in the Hotel DuPont because it was too much, it was a waste of money. Uh, but I, I don't know exactly, like, what, what the deal was with that, but, um, he had walked, when he walked away from the Hotel DuPont, he went to 8th and Orange, um, and this is at night, let's say, and it's a pretty rough neighborhood. Um, you know, when you're thinking about that, uh, you know, it's, that's not, like, one of the, the safest places. You know, uh, during the day, it's a lot of, you know, it's in the middle of a business district, and, you know, it would be okay if it was during the day, but at night, I wouldn't be walking around there. But, you know, that's just me, and I'm not trying to put people down that live in the city or anything like that. It just, that's not one of the safest neighborhoods. So, I'm just saying that. Um, so, um, we can sit here and, you know, whoop. Work, we can sit here and talk about, you know, how he struggled with mental illness, realer, uh, which causes heart attack and murder. We, can, we can't get any answers after 11 years, and either can his family. And we can only pray that the family and police get answers after 11 years. The police have worked diligently on this. The police and the FBI follow every single lead during those 11 years, and once you run out of the leads, there is not much you can do. So, um, if you have any information about this case, please call Delaware Crime Stoppers at 1-800-847-333. That's 1-800-847-333. So, if you know of anything, it doesn't matter, you know, if you saw something or doesn't mean that you're going to get in trouble. It just means that you're going to give a tip and it's anonymous. It's called Delaware Crime Stoppers. Or log on to www.delawarecrimestoppers.com. That's www.delawarecrimestoppers.com. So, and also I want to bring up, you know, with mental illness, it's a very tough situation. So, I feel like they don't do enough for people with mental illness in this country. I'm just going to say that. But, um, if you or anyone you know, or you encounter someone experiencing mental health issues, which I bring that up because, you know, um, I think if you see somebody that doesn't look right, I don't care if they're, you know, if it's, you know, you, you know, go now, everybody has a cell phone, or find a phone and call 911 and get help from this person, um, because, you know, that could save the person's life. And that might have saved Jack's life. We don't know. Um, so, um, you know, and the, the number for that is called NAMI, N-A-M-I Helpline. And it's open from Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's, uh, so it's the NAMI Delaware. And it's 1-800-950-NAMI, N-A-M-I, and that's 6246. That's one 800 940 Oh, I'm sorry, 950-950-NAMI, N-A-M-I, or 62464, or you can also email them with any, any concerns at info at NAMI.org. That's info, I-F-I-N-F-O, at NAMI, N-A-M-I, dot org.
right, well, this was a long taste. We covered a lot of great things in here. Um, so I want to say, um, you know, thank you for listening. And I, I just so appreciate all my listeners, you know, taking the time to my listen to my podcast. And, um, you know, I just am so appreciative of that. You know, um, I try to cover as much as I can in all these cases. I uh, do a lot of research. Take me, like, over a week to do all the research. Um, so I want to, and I want to uh, thank all these people that have listened and commented me and told me that they really liked my podcast, or and also the ones that have said, "Well, you could work on something." That has made me want to work harder on these podcasts. So thank you for listening. It means so much to me. And tune in next week for a whole new episode of Delaware Crime Podcast. And as, as always, for photos and clips of this case, log on to Delaware Crimes Facebook page listed on the episode description. So when you like click on the episode and you see the um, description, you know the, the description of the episode, it'll be all the information for the face for the Delaware Crime Facebook page, um, and also you emailing me with any questions or concerns will be on the bottom of the description of the of the um, episode and I did that because I wanted people to be able to click on them instead of having me to you know say another thing so uh, so I, I hope you have a um, and then, you know on my Facebook page that there's there's gonna be the videos of Jack uh, you know all these things and other cases that I've done So have a wonderful, I really appreciate you all listening, and have a wonderful and blessed week, okay, and, you know, keep your, keep your head up, it's, you know, some, it's the sundown or whatever, just, you know, have a blessed week. So Delaware Crime is an audio Francis production. What do you think, Francis? Okay, Mom.